Amen. Amen. Lord, we do lift up your most holy name. And Lord, we long to see you face to face. Lord, but help us to just keep our eyes looking up as our redemption draweth near. Father, we ask as we go to your word right now that you'd be our teacher. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel. It is great to have you here. And as a former youth pastor, that was awesome. Amen? Amen. You know, the Bible says, I know no greater joy than to know my children walk in the truth. And I just love to see young people on fire for God. And, and we need to pray for them as they go back to school and, you know, after summer's over, man, boy, we need to see a, a revival on the high school campuses. And I used to tell people all the time, the way you reach the campuses is you reach the kids. And then the kids go reach the campus. Amen? So keep them in prayer and praise the Lord for that. And, and be praying about there's junior high camp coming up in about a month. And we have a group of junior hires going down as well. So be praying for them. All right. Well, this morning we're going to continue looking at the letter written by Peter to the, to the early church who is in the midst of great persecution. And as we've been talking about, we saw how he had a, a word of encouragement and a word of exhortation to them. The word of encouragement to them was that, indeed, God is faithful. He's on their side. He loves them. He has a plan for them. He has not left them, even though they're considering, at least that's what is believed. Some of them were considering just walking away from the Lord. I mean, they had to be scattered. They'd been scattered. This letter was uh, circulated through many cities throughout Asia where the believers had been scattered because of persecution. And now having been scattered, things haven't gotten better. They've only gotten worse. And from the world's perspective, that's sometimes how that can seem. You're walking with God and now the world's coming after you. But the Bible says, Jesus said, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you for my name's sake. For so they did to the prophets who went before you. And they were experiencing that very persecution. And in the midst of it comes Peter, the pillar of the faith, a man who knew what it was like to walk away from God, a man who knew what it was like to deny the Lord and then have that opportunity to come back. And his exhortation to them was not to experience walking away from God. Guys, it's never worth it. Amen? And you know what? Praise God for His grace that will always welcome us back. And so He encourages them. You've been sanctified unto the Lord. He encourages them to say, you've been born again. You have a living hope. You serve a risen and living Savior. You have a home in heaven. You've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And then in light of all those things, He told them, exhorted them that they needed to gird up the loins of their minds and to be holy for he is holy. Guys, the fact that we've been born again, we say it often, ought to change the way we live. God has not called us to have, uh, live a life of cheap grace, to live lives of carnal Christianity, where we come to church on Sunday and we live like the world the rest of the week. Guys, if we've truly been born again, it ought to be obvious. Amen? And that was the exhortation to them was, here's who you are in Christ, now here's how you ought to live. You need to be living a life that is holy and set apart unto him. Be ye holy, for I am holy. Love one another with a fervent heart. Desire the word of God, like, you know, desire the pure milk of the word, he said. And we talked about how a baby just hungers for that milk. Then last week, if you weren't here, and a lot of you were gone, a lot of our men were gone, and uh, we had a, a big group up at Big Sur as well. And I titled the message last week, Live Every Day Like Someone's Watching. 
And the reality is, someone is. God has his eyes on you first and foremost, but so does the world. And there's a world that needs Jesus. And we need to be an example to them. And the exhortation that he gave to them last week, he said, look, you guys are foreigners and temporary residents on this planet. Live in a way that will lead others to Christ. And then we're going to look, the word he began to talk about that we're going to look at more this morning is a word that people don't like. And the word is submit. And he gave them a couple things they were called to submit to. You're foreigners in this world. And he said, so because of that, because of who you are in Christ, because this is not your home, then you need to learn to submit. And the first thing he said to do was to submit to the government. Now, wait a minute. He didn't know about the, the Santa Cruz City Council, certainly. I mean, of course, he meant a good government, a godly government, one that feared the Lord, right? He didn't mean a, a harsh government. Well, you got to remember that when he wrote this, Caesar Nero was reigning in Rome, and you don't find a more ungodly man who's ever lived on the planet outside of that guy. He's a, he was the Hitler of his day. He was as vile a man as there ever was, and yet the exhortation was, submit to the government. Submit to those gods placed in authority over you. Submit to the, to the police officers and the firefighters. Submit to all of those who have authority in your life. If you're a student, submit to your teacher. Submit to those who God has placed there. Now, with all the submission that God has called us to, there's always one exception, and the exception is this. If they ever tell you to do something contrary to the word of God. If the government ever outlaws the Bible, we need to read it anyway. Amen? If they outlaw sharing our faith, we need to share our faith anyway. But short of that, God has called you and I to be salt and light, to live in a way that will glorify God, and to submit to the authorities that he has placed in our life. Submission to the world, submission to the governmental authorities that God has placed there is submission to God because God has told us to do it. Secondly, not only to the government, but this might have been even harder for some of you to hear, but last week he also told us to submit to our masters. Well, we don't have masters, we're not slaves. Well, in a sense, that's true, but in context, it's employer-employee. So he's telling us to submit to our employer or to submit to the teacher, submit to that person that has authority in our lives, to be the best worker in the building, to honor God in the way that we do our job. And what's interesting is he said, not just the good and gentle ones, but even those who are harsh. Because some of you not out were sitting there going, well, yeah, well, the good and gentle one, yeah, if I had a godly boss, if I had a nice boss, I mean, guys, it's not submission if it's easy. Do you understand that? It's not submission if I will do it if I agree. But if I don't agree, I won't do it. That's not submission. That's just doing what you want. Submission is I don't agree. I'm going to do it anyway because God told me. Amen? That's easier said than done, isn't it? And that's the exhortation here. And the word harsh, it's interesting, means warped, crooked, or perverse. So if you have a warped, crooked, or perverse boss, honor him and do your job in a way that will glorify God, that he might see the good works in you and want to know the Jesus Christ that you know. Guys, we are there for a reason. Nothing happens by chance in the kingdom of God. Your neighbors are your neighbors by divine appointment. Your coworkers are your coworkers by divine appointment. Your boss is your boss by divine appointment. And you live in Santa Cruz by divine appointment. And God has called us to be salt and light of this place. Amen? Now, we went through all of that last week, and now we move on, and I titled the message this morning, because we're going to continue to look at submission, 
But now we're going to look at submission in the place where it might be hardest, in our homes. I titled the message this morning, How to Impact Your Home for Jesus. You might say, well, everybody in my family's saved. You know what? Could our homes be more on fire for God? What's the answer? Could we be more set apart unto Him? Could we have a, a, a desire and a passion to live more holy? Of course we could. So if you're a note taker, how to impact your home for Jesus. Number one, by following Jesus' example. Guys, it doesn't matter what other Christians do. It doesn't matter what other people say. The example that we follow is Jesus Christ. Amen? Because men will fail us, men will fall, men will not be faithful all the time. But God always is. And our Savior always is. So number one, by following Jesus' example. Number two, by being a godly wife. We're going to spend a great deal this morning looking at what it means to be a godly wife. Because that's the context as this is being written. Now remember, they're in the midst of persecution, and he's reminding them that their homes need to be set apart unto the Lord. Not running from God, but set apart unto him. And then, then third point, by being a godly husband. So let's begin in verse 21 of 1 Peter chapter 2. If I hadn't mentioned the text, forgive me. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. And the first point will be how to impact your home for Jesus by following Jesus' example. So it says there, right if he's exhorted them to submit to their masters, to submit to the government, to be set apart unto the Lord, and this is what he says in verse 21. For to this you were called. For to this you were called. What is he talking about? To submit to your master. To submit to your boss. To submit to the government. To be faithful to the word of God before a lost and dying world. To be salt and light. To be an example. For this you were called. It is a calling to redemption. A calling to salvation. A calling to the eternal promise of heaven. A calling to follow Christ. And yes, a calling to submit to the authorities God's placed over us, even the harsh. You know, last week after the message, many of you came up and said, you must have gone to work with me because I've got that boss. I work for that guy. And you have no idea how hard it is. And I'm not, I never want to make light of it, of your situation or say it's less than it is. But guys, God never calls us to do something that he won't equip us to do. God is faithful and guys, it's in the midst of that turmoil that we get to see God work. And God has allowed it for a reason. So, you may be suffering unjustly. You may be persecuted unfairly. But guys, God knew. God knows. He's faithful. All of that unjust punishment, all of that unfair treatment is an opportunity for the gospel. Guys, God did not promise us a, comfor a comfortable life. Amen? He called us to, to live a life set apart unto him and to realize that in the midst of that, we will face persecution. Well, wait a minute. The church, I, I'm going to go back to my old church because they said, if I love God, I'm just going to be on the cruise ship to heaven and I'm never going to have another problem. You know what? Look at the apostles. Look at the prophets of God. Look at those used most mightily by the Lord. Guys, if we have an eternal perspective, what can the world do to me? Nothing comparison with the eternal glory which is to come. These things are but a light affliction. And he says, For this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, 
leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Your suffering, Jesus is your example. Did anyone ever in the history of all humankind suffer as much as our Savior? The answer is no. And he's our example. Too often we want to look around and again, we see somebody that we think is walking with the Lord and maybe they are and they seem to have it easy and we're envious of that life. And guys, when we stand before Almighty God, when this time has come and passed, only what we've done for Christ will last. Nothing else is going to matter. And the exhortation here is, for this you were called. Jesus Christ suffered. He suffered a great deal, but through his suffering, great things happened. Through the cross of Calvary, you and I were redeemed. Guys, it's in the midst of suffering that God can be glorified. It's easy to be the Christian when everything's perfect, but the world is watching us most closely when things are not. That's when we get to be salt and light. So Jesus' suffering was for the benefit of others. He suffered and died that you and I would be forgiven. So that difficulty in our life serves not only to refine us and buffet us, but to point others to Christ. Our trials, all the persecution we may endure, is for a reason and is a part of God's plan. You know, I'm going to quote a verse that people never would quote right here, but I think it's appropriate. All things work together for good for those who trust in God, for those who are called according to His purpose. Most people quote that when they're a lot of often out of context, speaking of it as being that your life is always going to be easy and perfect, but the reality is the context of that verse is that all things work together for good when we're suffering. All things work together for good when it's difficult. All things work together for good when it seems like I have no way out. That's the exhortation, a word of encouragement to us that God indeed is faithful. I know that we could sit here and we could do like those two youth group girls did, and I could have people come up and give testimonies of times when it seemed like there was no way out, and then God came through. And what happens? Our faith grows. Our boldness grows. We have a greater passion to share with others because we've seen God at work in a mighty and a powerful way. Guys, when we're in a trial, the question shouldn't be why. Aren't we tempted to ask that question? The question should not be why, the question should be what. Not why, Lord, are you allowing this to happen, but what, Lord, are you going to do through this? What, Lord, do you want to do through this? What, Lord, do you want to do in my life and in my heart? The exhortation to these first century Christians in the midst of persecution was, look to Jesus Christ, he's your example. Don't look at the other Christians who are walking away. Don't look at those who are lukewarm in their faith. Look unto the Lord, the author and finisher of our faith. So, when we go through the trial, the question should be not why, but what, and then also, how would Jesus respond? Guys, I think it's good to just take a step back, take a deep breath, and say, Lord, give me wisdom and show me how you would respond. Amen? You think we might respond a little different. Instead of just responding in the flesh and just coming out so, and boy, that's a temptation for all of us. Christ also suffered, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. The word there, example, is in, in the original language means underwriting. He is a written copy, including all the letters of the alphabet. That's what this word means. Given to beginners so they can look at that example and they can copy it verbatim. 
Guys, that's how we need to look at our Savior. Amen? We need to look at him and follow him and copy him and imitate him and be like him. That's what the word Christian means. A little Christ, a follower of Christ. In the midst of the persecution, the exhortation is to follow him, to follow his example. He says there, he uses the word steps. Follow his steps. Again, he has placed the footprint He is our example, and we are to put our feet where he has walked. We are to imitate him and to follow hard after him. Verse 22. Then it says of Jesus, he suffered. Well, maybe he must have done something wrong then that he suffered. We know better than that. But just in case there were those who are considering that, what did Jesus do that brought that on himself? Look at verse 22. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. He's quoting Isaiah 53, 9. How did Jesus respond to unfair treatment, to suffering wrongs at the hands of the harsh? It says there he committed no sin. They mistreated him. He committed no sin. They mocked him. They scourged him. They covered his face and they hit him with their fists and they said, prophesy who hit you. They put a crown of thorns on his head and a reed in his hand after he'd been scourged and a purple robe on his back and mocked him as the king of the Jews. The scourging itself was far worse than anything we could ever imagine as that cat of nine tails and and glass and bone grabbed into his skin and was pulled away, pulling away chunks of his skin with every one of them. And yet he stood there and he took it even though he's God and he didn't have to. Why did he? Because he loves you. Why did he? Because he wanted to take our place out of his love for us so that we might have a relationship with him. He was suffering far more than we've ever suffered, and yet he did not sin. And yet he did not have deceit in his mouth. The word deceit there is the word guile, to decoy or trick. And you know what? He did not try to trick anybody. He didn't try to overcome evil with evil. There was absolutely no deceit or trickery in Jesus' words or deeds. In the midst of the greatest suffering and the most unwarranted persecution, Jesus didn't lash out, but he represented the Father in both his words and actions. Guys, as Christians, this is our example. But I've been been mistreated. Uh, No doubt you have. How are you to respond? Not with lashing out with words, not trying to overcome evil with evil, not standing up for yourself. We're going to talk about that in a moment. We're supposed to deny ourselves and magnify His name. How do you respond in the midst of suffering? Do our words and actions bring glory to His name, or do we cause others to blaspheme, and do we appear to them to be yet another Christian hypocrite? Guys, God's called us to respond different than the world because we are different than the world. We so often excuse our behavior because we look at someone else, well, I'm not as bad as that guy. You've heard me say it before. God doesn't grade on the curve. He grades at the cross. Amen? You don't compare yourself to another man, Jesus Christ, and he alone is our example. Then it says this in verse 23. Now watch how he responds. They're going to give us some examples here. Peter's given us some clear examples. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. Revile. He was falsely accused of being a glutton and a wine-bibber. He was called a friend of publicans and sinners. He was spoken of as a deceiver. He was charged with being in league with Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. He was condemned as a blasphemer. This and more was done. 
And who was it done by? The most influential people on the planet. It was done in the most public of all settings, with design to destroy his reputation and alienate his friends. It was done with the most cutting sarcasm you can imagine. And perfect, holy God, unjustly mocked and blasphemed, falsely accused, did not revile in return. He didn't show anger. He didn't use harsh language. He didn't call out for revenge. What did he do? He prayed for them. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Guys, that's our example. I know that's hard to hear, but I can't live up to that. Know what? You can't. I can't. But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amen? And God has called you and I to live different, to respond different, to be different than the world around us. Our Savior calmly stood and bore it all. He came to endure all kinds of suffering in order to set an example for us and to make atonement for our sins. Then it says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. As they beat him with their fist, as they mocked him, as they made fun of who he was, when he was brutally scourged, he was able to stop them and instead of threatening them or stopping them, or if it had been you or me, we would have turned them into a pile of toads or something, right? Can you imagine if you're Almighty God and someone is scourging you, how many, how many, they wouldn't even have to hit me. They just have to be warming up. I'd be like, you know what, guys? I don't think so. How about I just prove myself to be God? You're a pile of rocks. Now, anybody else got a problem? You know, and that's how our flesh wants to respond. But you know what? The whole time the Lord did not respond because he thought of us. Guys, we should not be responding in an ungodly way, and our thoughts should be on the Lord, but also on our testimony to those that God has put us in, a sphere of influ- in our sphere of influence. Guys, you realize you're the only Jesus some people will ever see. You are the salt and light of that office. Billy Graham's not coming to your work or to your school or to your job site anytime soon. God's put you there instead. And as you are there, you can blow your testimony. Two minutes of, a, of, of anger can blow two years of testimony. And the exhortation here to them as they're considering walking away is, look, here's what Jesus did for you. Here's how he responded. Here's how we should respond. Jesus Christ is our example. And it says there, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, as he was being tortured, what did he do? He committed himself to the Father. His focus was on the Father. His eyes were on the Father. Guys, this is our example. In the midst of the torment, in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of the financial trials, in the midst of the health issues, let's keep looking up. Let's get our eyes off of our problems and on our God. Keep our eyes on Him. And when we do that, we can be salt and light to a world that so desperately needs Him. Jesus' entire focus was to bring honor to the Father in both his words and his actions. And Jesus put himself in God's hands. You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You guys have heard me talk about the story so many times because it's one of my favorites, Daniel chapter 3. But you know what I love as they're about to be thrown in the fiery furnace? 
They said, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known unto you, O king, that we will not serve your gods nor worship the golden image which you have set up. Here's what they said. God can deliver us. We believe he will deliver us. But even if he doesn't deliver us, we're going to continue to worship him and praise him alone. Because guys, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Amen. The worst the world can do to me is the best that can happen to me. The exhortation is very clear. He's our example. Let's follow after him. And then it says in verse 24, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Jesus did not what was best for him, but was best for us. Guys, we need to remember that the next time we're in a place of trial or difficulty or persecution, it's not about what's best for us, but what's best for Him. Not what's best for my comfort, but best for His name. That He might be glorified through this trial that I'm going through. He endured the suffering for our sake to bring about a greater result. And guys, as we will endure the suffering, it will bring about a greater result. He suffered physically that we might be healed spiritually. It says in Isaiah 53, and that's what's being quoted from here. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Guys, certainly this may have a connotation of physical healing, but really the focus is spiritual healing, which is far better. Amen? By his stripes, we are healed spiritually. By his stripes, by his suffering, by his torment, by his death, we're going to heaven. You know, we need to live such a radical life for Jesus Christ that if our death would lead one other person to Christ, we ought to be right there. Oh, Pastor Dave, you need to mellow out a little bit. Come on now, settle down. You don't have to be so out. You know what, guys? Do we really want to see people saved? If we really want to see people saved, then Lord, whatever you have to do, let's do it. God, this life is but a vapor. This stuff is passing away. Help me to hold on to it with just a a very small grip. Lord, let me just hold it lightly, Father, that I might be used for your kingdom and for your glory. And Lord, if you have to take my health to save my friend, then do it. Because guys, that matters. It's far more important. That's radical Christianity. And we need a little more of that today. Amen? We're too afraid to share our faith because someone might think funny things about us. It's far worse to stand next to them on judgment day and have them ask you, why didn't you tell me? Amen? God has put us where we are for a reason. Jesus Christ is our example. Let's follow his example. Let's be willing to lay down our lives for him as he laid down his life for us. In the midst of the greatest suffering in human history, Jesus thought of us and not himself. And as his suffering made a way for us to be saved, he made the work of Calvary for his glory. I had unbelievers say to me, why do they call it Good Friday? They ought to call it Bad Friday. I mean, they crucified him. That's Bad Friday. It all depends on how you're looking at it. Amen? I think you ought to call it Great Friday. Because you know what? The greatest act of human love in all of history was upon the cross of Calvary. 
And he's our example. Help us, Lord, to lay down our lives for you. And thank you, Lord, that by your stripes we were healed. And then it says, for we, for you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Again, in context, he's talking to these guys who are contemplating leaving their faith in the midst of persecution. Things are getting tough. And he says, let me tell you, here's who you were. You are wandering around lost. Your lives had no meaning. Remember what your life was like before Jesus Christ. Some of us need to take a second and think about that. What was my life like before I came to know Jesus? Not good, amen? And we look and we realize that's who I was, but look who I am now in Christ. And praise God for his grace. Praise God for what he's done. And in the midst of all of that, we have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. It says in Isaiah 53, verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We deserted God and he died for us. We mocked his name. We cursed his name. We rejected his name. We walked away from him. And he loved us anyway. You know what? Praise God for the prodigal son in the word. Praise God that the prodigal son who thinks he's coming back to the father and thinks it would be just a blessing if he could be one of his servants. He's taken his inheritance. He's lived like the world. He's found out what a disaster it is. He thinks, boy, the servants eat better in my father's house. I'll just go back and be a servant. But when his father sees him coming, he kills the fatted calf. He brings out his best robe. He puts a ring on his finger and he gives him his inheritance back. That's our father, you guys. He doesn't want us to wallow with the pigs. He wants us to be in his mansion. He wants us to be in in close, intimate fellowship with him. And there's no better place to be. Jesus Christ, our example. May we follow after him. The word shepherd there, Jesus is our good shepherd. What does a good shepherd do? He feeds his sheep. He protects them from the beast who would come and try to destroy them. You know, praise God that we were lost, but now we're found. We were blind, but now we see. We were once dead in sin, but now we're alive in Christ. And he's got us in his hands. And he's the overseer. The word there is bishop. He's the one that watches over us and protects us and cares for us. Guys, we need to be far more concerned about our eternal destiny and spiritual impact on the lost and our physical comfort. We need to realize that it's a faithful God who has us in his hands. And it ought to impact the way that we live and the way we're entertained and the priorities of our lives. Reminder of how lost we were without Jesus and how incredibly blessed we are with him. And this is such a great reminder for us all that in the midst of the greatest trials and persecution, that God is at work. Just remember, he's at work. Whatever you're going through, he's faithful. Trust him. So, how to impact your home for Jesus? Number one, by following Jesus' example. Number two, by being a godly wife. Wow, what a change of gears. But you know what? In light of the fact of who Jesus is and all that Jesus has done, shouldn't it impact every aspect of our lives? It ought to impact the way you drive your car. Amen? It ought to impact every aspect of your life. And certainly... He's talked about submitting to the government. He's talked about submitting to your master or your boss or your teacher. And now he's going to talk about submission in 
the home. So by being a godly wife, number one, we're going to see the heart of a godly wife. The heart of a godly wife is that, that word that so many people hate, the word submission. Look what it says in verse one. Wives, likewise, likewise. So just like you submit to the government, just like you submit to the police officer, just like you submit to all those in authority over you, likewise, wives, submit to your own husbands. For some of you, this is the death nail. Oh, forget it. I'm, you know what? That's, I'm just going to be in rebellion in that part of my life. I just can't do it. You have not seen the man that God gave me. There's just no way. You don't know who I live with. You haven't seen the habits that he has. You have no idea what this guy is like. You know what the context of this verse is? He is speaking to women who are married to unbelievers. And he says to them, wives, the word there is gune, it means a, an old woman, a young woman, it's regardless of age. And it says, you submit to your husband. Because he understands something. In the first century church, people were getting saved. And when people got saved, the question would then be, well, now that I'm born again, now that I'm a Christian and my husband is still a pagan, am I supposed to leave him? Maybe I need to go get a nice Christian guy and leave that pagan guy behind. Guys, the Bible does say, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Amen? And let me encourage you, if you're not married, do not hang out with court, be close friends with someone who's not saved. That is a recipe for disaster. Don't do it. We could have testimony time on that and have people just come up here one right after another. Hey, don't do it, right? We could do that for the next five hours. But here's the thing. If you married someone who's not saved, or if you got saved after you were married, what is God's plan now? You stay and be a godly example. You stay and let him see Jesus Christ in you, or you stay and let her see Jesus Christ in you if you're the husband and your wife's not saved. And here's the exhortation. Submit to the guy even if he's a harsh pagan. What? Come on. Guys, it's not submission if it's easy. It's not submission if we would do it anyway. And so, the same manner, there needs to be submission in the home. So wives are to be submissive. The word there means to be in subjection, to arrange under in like a military sense. Now, I want to make this very clear. It does not make the wife less in any way. Did Jesus submit to his father? What's the answer? Is Jesus less than the father? Absolutely not. Guys, the point is that while there is submission, it is a, am I less than a police officer or less than, a, than my boss at work? The answer is no, but God has called me to submit to them because they have authority over me. So it's not an, a, someone being better or greater as, as much as it is that that's the position that I'm in, that God has placed me in. And so because I am there, I'm to be a godly example in that place. And for wives, God has placed you in a position where God has given headship of your home to your husband. And God has called you, but wait a minute, I'm a Christian and he's not. I should take spiritual headship. Let's keep reading. Because we're going to find out that's not what God says. The same submission that we have in every other aspect of life, even more so, submit to your own husbands. It is, call, it is commanded by God. It gives proper order in the home. One of the reasons that homes are in a mess today is men will not be the spiritual leaders in their homes and there are wives who won't let them. Amen? That was really weak. 
Amen? There's a truth to that. Guys, time for you to step up. Wives, time for you to submit to your husband. Let him be the spiritual leader. Encourage him to be the spiritual leader. So imagine the chaos that would result if we all just stopped obeying the laws of the land. What would it be like? And that's the chaos we see in our homes today. Because too often, God has called husbands to lead, to take that position of authority. And either their wives won't let them, or the husbands won't do it. Submission to authority, again, as I said, can be totally consistent with the quality of importance and dignity in the eyes of God. And so don't think that it makes you less. It's the position that God has placed you in. And then it says this. Look what it says. Be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word. So here we are, the unbelievers. So even those who do not obey the word, you're still supposed to submit to them. They've never read their Bible. They don't know what the Bible looks like. They mock the fact that I go to church on Sunday. They curse God's name. There's some, the foulest person I know, submit to him. That just doesn't seem right. But you know what? Did God always know that you were going to be in that environment? He absolutely did. Should you leave your husband? Should I take control? The answer is no. While we are not to be an equal yoked, again, God has placed you there. He's got you there for a specific reason. So what should you do with your unsafe husband? You submit to him. And it's not conditional. It's not when he's a good guy. Submission is not something your husband earns by his behavior. Ooh, you're being a good guy. Okay, I'll submit. Oh, you're a jerk? Not so much. You know what I mean? And I hear people say that. They put conditions on submitting. Well, if he gets up and reads the Bible with me every day, and he starts being this, and he goes out and gets a second job so I can stay home, then I'll submit. If he's laying on the sofa eating a bag of chips, submit to him. Pastor Dave, that just doesn't seem right. Shouldn't I go home and give him some instructions? Shouldn't I write out a list of things that he needs to do? I need to snap that boy in order. Come on. Well, let's keep reading the verse. Look what it says. If some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. So they without a word from you, wife. That's what it says. That they without you saying anything will be won by your conduct. They will look and see the godly woman you are in the actions you take, in the way that you respect them, in the way that you honor them, in the way that you allow them to lead, even if they don't know God. And in doing so, it says in that verse that they may be won by the conduct of their wives. So notice again, without a word. Without a word. You don't have to give them a list. You don't have to go home and straighten them out. I'll tell you, when I do marriage counseling, that's often the case. There's the wife trying to straighten the husband out, giving him a list of things he needs to do. You need to do this, 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 this. Whoa. Can you show me that in the Bible? The greatest thing you can do for your husband is respect him. Respect him, honor him, love him, and be a Christ-like example. And watch what God does. Because it says right in this verse that they may be won by the conduct of of their wives. Now I heard this story some years back, and I have to confess to you, I don't remember where I heard it. So I'm just telling you that right up front. But a woman who had been constantly, her husband was constantly coming after her, constantly mocking her faith, constantly taking her Bible away and hiding it from her, constantly just being all over her and mistreating her and being abusive. 
And I want to say this, if your life is in danger, it's okay to leave. But anything short of that, you remain. But here's the point. She was praying, and he thought, I'm going to get her. And he went and got a, a bucket of ice cold water. And he went over and he dumped it on her head while she was praying. And you know what? She just kept praying. Bucket on her head, water dripping down. She just kept praying. And you know what happened? Her husband got on his knees next to her. Guys, it's by the conduct of a godly wife that an ungodly man will be saved. It's not by lectures. It's not by winning an argument. It's not by you straightening him out. It's by you living for God in front of him and letting him see Jesus Christ in you. That's the example. Guys, it's the same for men. It could easily just be, easily be a man. You be a Christ-like example to your wife. A wife's submission is a powerful expression of her, of her trust in God. This kind of faith can accomplish great things even without a single word. It's submission that wins men to Christ. But you know what? When you begin to give him orders and instruct him and direct him, you know, there's Proverbs that talk about a wife like that. It says in Proverbs 19, a foolish son is a destruction to his father, and the contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. That's in the Bible. You know, if you go home and, ah, 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 it's, it's constant dripping. That's not very effective. It also says in Proverbs 21, it is better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than in a brawl, with a brawling woman in a white house. It also says it is better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. You'd be better off in the wilderness by yourself. So you got to understand something, that you going home, don't be the dripping woman. Don't be the angry and contentious woman. Don't be driving your husband out into the wilderness where it's better. Go home, submit, love him, represent Christ, pray for him, pray for an opportunity to in love share the hope that lies within you, but live it without a word. And if God gives you a chance to speak, do it in love. Amen? Guys, I'm, let me encourage you. Submit to him. Love him. Respect him. Honor him. Let him see Christ in you. It's the godly conduct that leads your husband to repentance. When they observe, it says in verse 2, your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. The word chaste there means pure, modest, reverent, and clean. A woman of such behavior will impact even the hardest-hearted of husbands. Not Again, it's not the lecture, it's living it out. Let's be examples of Christ. Let's be witnesses and when necessary use words. Amen? Be witnesses all the time by how we live and how we love and how we serve. And it says they're accompanied by fear. The word there has a, a twofold potential meaning. A fear of God, but also a reverence for her husband. So she walks in holiness. She's a chaste woman. She's not speaking with anger. She's not vile. She doesn't have an attitude. She's not demanding. And she walks in reverence of her husband, even if he's a harsh knucklehead. That's what the Bible's telling us. But you know what? That's how that man is going to be one to the Lord. So how to impact your home? By following Jesus' example, by being a godly wife, having the heart of a godly wife, and that heart is a heart of submission. Number two, we're going to see the true beauty of a godly woman. What is the true beauty of a godly woman? It says in verse three, do not let your adornment be merely outward 
arranging the hair and wearing gold or putting on fine apparel. Now, some have taken this to mean that, we sh- that women should not wear jewelry and that they shouldn't do anything with their hair. But the problem with that is that means they shouldn't wear clothes either. Because that word fine is not in the original language. It says they're putting on apparel. So when people try that maneuver, nice try, but that's not what it says. That's not what it says. Have you seen some churches like that where they try to make the women as homely as they can possibly make them? Have you ever seen this? I've been to church. I've, we, we played in a basketball league one time, and all the women would come in, and they were wearing like sackcloth and ashes, and their hair was all just a mess. And you're like, dude. How is that honoring to God? I mean, what's up with that? And then, you know, and again, that's not... Now, at the same time, what he's saying is, let your, don't let your adornment be merely outward. Don't let, don't let what's beautiful about you only be what people see on the outside. Real beauty is not what's on the outside, but who you are on the inside. And we need to spend more time on the inward beauty than we do on the outward. Now, again, it's okay. You know, as Pastor Chuck said, if the barn needs painting, paint it. Amen? It's okay. It's interesting. That word adornment there is cosmos. It's where we get the word cosmetics. Don't let your adornment. And cosmos is the exact opposite of the word chaos. So, you know, sometimes you need a little cosmetics to get what is chaotic in line, right? It's okay. But don't make that the focus. You know what? My prayer would be for men and women alike that when you walk away, they don't talk about how beautiful your earrings were. And that's okay to have beautiful earrings. But when you walk away, they talk about your relationship with the Lord and your kindness and your gentleness and your purity and the sweet spirit. It's far more important, isn't it? Far more important than that which is fading. And so, a woman's supreme beauty should not be just what is on the outward. Again, it's not forbidding the arranging of hair. It's not forbidding the wearing of gold. It's not forbidding the putting on of fine apparel. But a godly woman, again, that outward adornment should be done with modesty, and it should not be consuming and taking away time from developing that real beauty, that inner beauty. Look what it says in verse 4. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. You know what God says? More beautiful than the, than the most expensive dress and the most beautiful jewelry and the best done makeup and the perfect hairstyle is a quiet and simple heart before God. A gentle and quiet heart. Here's what it says about that, that hidden person of the heart. That beauty is incorruptible. That beauty will not fade away. That beauty will not get gray or grow wrinkles. Amen? That's a beauty that with age will only get better. The inward beauty is going to outlast this life. And you know what? Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Guys, it's not the pretty dress or the gold earrings that will lead your unsaved husband to Christ, but it's that hidden beauty in your heart that will be revealed by your actions that will cause him to want to know the God that you served. Again, it's okay to wear that stuff. I've been at churches where they didn't allow it. It's not pretty, okay? It's okay. Hey, I'm going to get in trouble later. That's all right. I love you guys, and you know that. 
But I remember, yeah, that's the devil's paint, man. You put that makeup on, that's from the devil. Oh, stop. That's not what it says. That's when you take the text out of context, all you got left is a con, right? Amen? And the context is, don't let that be the focus. Don't let that be the focal point. The focal point ought to be who you are on the inside, not who you are on the outside. So with incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Don't you love that? God looks down and you know what's precious to him? Not the supermodel all decked out. What's precious to him is the woman who has spent time in his presence, who prays for others, who has a loving heart for people, and who represents him in her actions. He looks and says, now that is precious to me. Guys, don't we want to be precious to the Lord? And what does that mean, a gentle and quiet spirit? I looked it up. A calm temper, a contented mind, a heart free of pride, envy, and irritability, filled with meekness, gentleness, and peace. Some of you just went, ooh, I'm flunking big time. But guys, here's the good news. God can still transform us, amen? God can still do that work in us. And make us into that quiet and gentle person. And you know what? This applies to men as well. God wants us to have that same heart, guys, as he's calling the women to. The fruit of spiritual maturity in a walk with God is in direct contrast to what the culture promotes today. The attributes that are looked down on by a lost world are precious in the sight of God. You know, I've gone back to work, and I'm just going to be real transparent with you and real open with you. There are women who outwardly are beautiful and they are nauseating to be around. I'm just shooting straight. You know why? Because they need Jesus. And you know what? Their mouths are foul and they're just bitterness and anger and there's an attitude and arrogance and pride and it's just, ah. And you know what? Just, oh Lord, help them. Because they think that if they put on the right clothes and do the right makeup and drive the right car, and have the right position, and achieve the right thing in business, that somehow that's going to satisfy. But you know what? God did not create women for that. God created them to be that perfect helpmate, to be salt and light, to be a woman with a quiet and gentle spirit. It's very precious in the sight of God. So how to impact your home for Jesus? By following Jesus' example, by being a godly wife with a heart of a godly wife, submission. True beauty of a godly wife, not merely outward, but a gentle and quiet spirit. And then thirdly, the example of a godly wife. Now let's take a look at the example here. We're almost done. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Here's the message Peter's giving to them. This is not a new commandment I've given you. It's always been this way, going all the way back to Adam and Eve. God's plan was always that the man would lead and his wife would submit to him. That the man is incomplete without his wife, that the wife is incomplete without her husband. God brings them together. They're a perfect complement for each other. It's always been God's plan. And so he's saying to them, this has always been the plan. This is nothing new. The standard for a godly wife is this inward character of godliness and this heart to submit to her husband. This is the reflection. This is the example of a godly wife. And then to give them an example, he goes back to Sarah. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Now, if you've been here on Wednesday night, 
We're going to go over a little bit because we let the kids share us, and that's okay, right? Amen? If you're here on Wednesday nights, is Abraham a knucklehead a lot of the time? What's the answer? Big time. Just tell him you're my sister. If I did that to my wife, I, my, my shins would be hurting for, for a year. I mean, can you imagine? Just tell him you're my sister. Then he goes into the harem. Oh, it's okay because I'm getting stuff. Just pretend you're my sister still. And then he did it again. And then it says that she still submitted to him and called him Lord. She called him Lord. I haven't tried that one. So babe, from now on, Lord Dave. Just call me Lord Dave. No. The word Lord there means master. That she put him in a position of authority even though he wasn't perfect. One of the greatest demonstrations of submission is Sarah who submitted to a husband who was blowing it. And that's the example he gives to them. A woman can trust her own ability to influence and control her husband or she can trust God to do it and be submissive. She can say, oh, I'm going to turn him around. How's that working out, by the way? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. I'm going to change him. I'll show him. I got, I'm going to put him on a program and I'm going to get him turned around. Drip, 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 drip. <laughs> or you can submit to God and let God do it. God will do a better job than you. Amen? Just submit to the Lord. Be an example. Finally, I know we're going a little bit over, but we are not going to leave without talking to the husbands. That would just be wrong. Women are like, preach it. If you need to take 20 more minutes, knock yourself out. Go right ahead. Matter of fact, I'm going to wake him up right now. Comes a nudge. Pay attention. You've been listening, nudging me for half an hour. Now it's your turn. Okay. Third point. How to impact your home for Jesus. By following Jesus, by being a godly wife, by being a godly husband. So a godly wife submits to her husband. What does a godly husband do? He gives honor to his wife. Look at verse 7. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to your wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Dwell with her with understanding. In the King James Version, it says, dwell with her according to knowledge. Now, I'm going to tell you that I don't think it's ever possible for any man to ever fully understand any woman. I just don't think so. But it says there, dwell with them with knowledge. I do believe we should do everything we can to get to know our wives. Amen? To know what blesses them and to know what bugs them. Right? And to do a lot of the one and little or none of the other. Amen? Get to know them. Dwell with them with understanding. Give honor to your wife. The Bible it says, give honor to your wife. Dwell with them with understanding, giving them honor. The word honor there means to treat her with love and respect and to treasure her. The word honor there means to be valuable, to be precious, to be dignified. Guys, we should so love and serve and honor our wives that they know how precious they are. She feels so loved and honored at submitting to you as a joy and not a drudgery. That she looks and says, you know what? It's easy to submit to him because he's laying down his life for me. 
He's loving me. He's serving me. He's caring for me. He's ministering to me. He's making the, me next to the Lord himself the priority of, my, of his life. You know what? It's easy for me to submit to a man like that. Guys, it's easy for us to submit to Jesus because Jesus loved us so much he would die for us. It's easy for a wife to submit to a man who's willing to lay down his life for his wife. Amen? Dwell with her with understanding, with knowledge. Take the time to get to know her. Take the time to find out what it is that blesses her. And then be about blessing her. And it says there, as the weaker vessel. And this is a word that people hate. Another one, I'm not the weaker vessel. Well, let's have a bench press contest and find out if that's true or not. You know what, guys? It doesn't mean the lesser vessel. God has created man for the most part, in most cases, where he is stronger than his wife. You know what you ought to be doing as a husband? Protecting your wife. Amen? My wife should know that the first line of defense if anything goes sideways is I'm going to stand up between her and anything else. God has called us to be that person who stands for her, stands with her, stands beside her, loves her unconditionally. I'm her biggest hero. I'm her best friend. I'm her greatest source of encouragement. And let me tell you right now, I'm not, I fail at that. Ask my wife after service. She'll be happy to tell you. I seriously, I, I'm not, I'm, I fail at that. This message was a, a source of real exhortation to me. It ought to be a source of exhortation for every husband in here, amen? And every man that may be married one day. God has called us to look at them and to come alongside them and to dwell with them with understanding and to give them honor, not to look down on them as second-class citizens. That's not biblical. You don't treat your wife like a doormat. You don't have her walking five steps behind you. You know what? She should be walking next to you. You ought to have your arm around her, protecting her, caring for her, loving her, ministering to her, amen? And again, when you, and it's easy for a man, it's easier for a man to do that when his wife respects him, and it's easy for a woman to honor her husband and respect her husband when he's loving her. You know what? 95% of the time when I do marriage counseling, the problem is the wife feels unloved and the husband feels, doesn't feel respected. And yet it says in Ephesians, husbands see that you love your wives and wives see that you respect your husbands. Guys, there's the answer. And he's saying, you know your wife and love your wife and serve your wife and lay down your life for your wife. And it says there, you are heirs together. Guys, here's the thing. She's not just your wife, she's your sister in Christ. It says we're heirs together. We're inheriting the same thing. We have the commonality of Jesus Christ in our relationship. It reminds us that even though we have authority in the marriage, our wives are still equal to us in every way. We're one flesh, wife submitting and respecting, husband loving, honoring, and serving. And then it says that your prayers may not be hindered. Here's the last point. The failure to live as a godly husband has spiritual consequences. If you are not being a spiritual husband and a godly leader, you are going to impact your relationship with the Lord. Now, guys, you don't have to raise your hand because probably every hand would be up. But have you ever done something wrong? been short with your wife, talked to her wrong, mistreated her in some way, and now it's time to pray over the meal. How's that go? And now I'm going to be transparent with you again. I don't know of one pastor that hasn't dealt with this. You go home and turmoil in the house, 
and things are going sideways and you get short with your wife and then you go off to study the Bible to teach other people. (laughs) And sometimes your wife, no, my wife wouldn't do this. Okay, Pastor Dave, go study the Word of God and tell those wives how to love, go tell those men how to be godly men. and be (laughs) I will be honest with you. There's times when I have not treated my wife right. It can be just a short word or something. I've been studying. I've had to get in my car and drive home, wake her up, make it right, and go back. Or call her at the very least, babe, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? You know what? Because it hinders our walk with God. My first calling is to be Lynette's husband. Before I'm a pastor, before I'm a father, before I work my full-time job, I'm her husband. And if I'm not doing a good job at that, it's going to hinder everything about my walk. Guys, the enemy wants to attack your marriage. If he can destroy your marriage, he will destroy the church. Marriage is talked about more in the Bible than the church. Husbands, love your wives. Honor them. Minister to them. Lay down your lives for them. Guys, it's so important that we not allow the enemy to have headway in our marriages. We need to make things right. Maybe there's some of you this morning that before you leave here or after you leave here, you need to get with your spouse and get things right. Amen? Maybe some of you have an unsaved spouse at home and you need to just go home and just start, don't go home with a list. Don't go home and tell him all things he needs to change. Just go home and start living it out in front of him. Amen? You know what? I so want to see revival, but guys, may it start in our houses first. May God do a work in my home, in, my, in those four walls. Guys, be the spiritual leader. Wives, submit to your husbands. Jesus Christ is our example. Let's follow him. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you for just how practical it is, even 2,000 years after this letter was written. And Father, I do pray for every marriage represented here. Father, I pray for the husbands, that they would be the spiritual leaders, that they would love and serve and honor their wives and lay down their lives for them. Father, I pray for the wives that you would teach them to truly submit to their husbands. And Lord, those who are married to an unbeliever, that they would just live, live it out in front of them every single day. Lord, this applies to the single people in the room as well. I pray for the women who are here, that they too would have that same gentle and quiet spirit that is precious in your sight, Lord, I pray that we'd be more concerned with who we are on the inside than who we are on the outside. Lord, we'd be people of character, not just people of reputation and and good looks. But Father, that again, before you, we reflect, be a reflection of you to a lost and dying world, but you would see into our hearts and it would be precious to you. So Father, we love you. We thank you again for just the people today being patient. It was went a little long, but Lord, we thank you for your word. It's always right on time. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.